And we continue our exploration of the Gospel of John, and we will finish up chapter 1 today. And as we have studied so far, we have seen John's presentation to his readers of this eternal Word who has coexisted with God from the very beginning, who is the creator of this world. This eternal Word was made flesh and entered into the creation that He Himself has made as a man, born as a baby and is fully God and fully man. If you were just to stop at verse 14, there would be enough for us to chew on for a lifetime as we consider this eternal Word that has made everything and has entered into the world that He has made, not for a visit, but to complete the eternal plan of redemption for those that God would call to Himself to make preparation for our being with Him for all of eternity. So John the the Apostle presents to us this person of the Word as Jesus. We see in John the Baptist's testimony about who this eternal Word is in their midst. That He is the messenger. He is the forerunner. He was the privileged one who was called to proclaim the coming of the Messiah to prepare the people for His arrival so that they would be ready to repent and come to the long-awaited Messiah promised to the nation of Israel from the very beginning of the covenant that God had made with His people. And so now we come to the calling of the first disciples, those who would be especially privileged to not only know Him, but to walk with Him, to hear His words, to see His works, to be with Him in the flesh, to marvel at the miracles, and then called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ as the central focus of their lives. So we're going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture. We're going to begin in verse 35 and go all the way to 51. There's really not a lot of natural ways to break this up. But here's what the Word of God says to us, as written in the Gospel of John. Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
And Jesus answered him and said, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater, thing than, greater things than these? And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So in this narrative, we see the calling of the first disciples. Now, John's account of the calling of the disciples is different from the account that we would read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are commonly referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. They are called the Synoptic Gospels because they share a lot of the same information. They share the same miracles. They share the same parables. They often share the exact same phrasing that you would read in each of those accounts. Some have said that there is a secret Q document that Matthew, Mark, and Luke used to write their Gospels, and by conservative commentators, they disregard that quell document theory and simply insist that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote from their own perspective, shared stories that they had seen and that they had heard. So when you look at the calling of the first disciples in the Synoptic Gospels, you don't see anything that takes place or is recorded for us in the Gospel of John. It isn't an either-or scenario. It isn't one is accurate and the other is fabricated. It's very simply this. Within the Gospel accounts, there is often very difficult chronology to follow. It is quite possible that John's account preceded the calling of the disciples as we would read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, when Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, He sees... Simon and Andrew and says, follow me and I will make, excuse me, Simon and John, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately drop their nets and they follow him. And so people have often wondered, was there something glowing in Jesus' face? Was God speaking quietly to Simon and to John that they would just drop their nets and follow him? It's quite possible that this account in John precedes the calling of the Gospels as recorded in the calling of the disciples as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which in my perspective makes a lot more sense when you read the calling in those synoptic Gospels. But there's no chronology to say this is exactly what happened and this is the order of events and this is why there are these differences here. You just can't, you can't say that emphatically or conclusively based upon the information that we have. In fact, John's Gospel is quite different. As Jesus will begin His public ministry in chapter 2, He will confirm what John the Baptist has testified that this is the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah. He will confirm that by transforming the water into wine. At the end of that account, then will we see John's, excuse me, Jesus' three-year ministry condensed into about nine chapters in the Gospel of John, whereas in the Synoptics, much more attention is given to his teaching ministry and the parables and the miracles that he performed. So in John's perspective, he's sharing with us his account of what took place at the calling of the first disciples. So we're going to see here that Andrew and John were called first. And with Andrew and John, there is a central question that is going to be asked. Now, it is Andrew who we will see named a little bit later in this account. John is not named. John never refers to himself in the first person within his gospel. But because of the detail that John provides, most specifically that it was the tenth hour, it's very likely that John is the other disciple of John the Baptist that heard 
John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God. So they have heard the testimony of John the Baptist that Jesus is the Lamb of God and they instantly turn away from John the Baptist and begin to follow after Jesus as He is walking. So they are literally following Jesus as He is walking down the path and He turns to them in verse 35 and says, What do you seek? As I thought about that, I really believe that that is not only the central question that Jesus is asking of Andrew and John, but it is the central question that we have to answer for ourselves. Do you think that Jesus knew the answer to the question that He asked? Do you think that Jesus knew what Andrew and John were really seeking after? Oh, make no mistake about it, He knew. But he wants to hear from these men, what is it that you seek? So I believe there's really two things that Jesus is asking here. Letter A. What do you seek in life? What is your life going to be all about? What is going to be the central focus? What is going to be the driving direction of your life? When you look at and evaluate your life, what is going to be at the center? Is it going to be what the world offers? Is it going to be things like money and power and prestige and fame and popularity? Is it going to be happiness? Is it going to be stability? Is it going to be contentment in a very discontented world? I believe that there are many foundational questions to our life that are wrapped up into this very seemingly innocent question that Jesus asks. What is it that you seek in your life, whatever it is that we seek in our lives, we must be certain of this, that we will find it in Christ alone. We will never find true fulfillment in our lives apart from a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. I have had the privilege of knowing men who have learned that lesson firsthand. I knew a guy in a church that I served with, and by the age of 30, he had acquired his first million dollars. That was the driving direction of his life. I am going to be wealthy. He found that when he, meet, when he made his first million dollars, the next question is, the next million. And when he accomplished that, it was the next million. And he began to recognize the futility of what he was building his life upon. He found true fulfillment in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It wasn't defined by money. It wasn't defined by business success, popularity, or anything else. It was in a relationship with Christ alone. The second part in Jesus' question here is, what is it that you seek in Him? What is it that we really and truly want out of a relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, some seek a relationship with Christ thinking that once they come to Him, all of their problems are going to disappear. Some have been duped into thinking that if you come to Christ, He's going to make you healthy and wealthy and wise. Some believe that when you come to Jesus Christ, He's going to give you some kind of a supernatural ability to transcend this world and rise above. Well, it doesn't exactly work that way. Jesus doesn't guarantee us any of the things the world values or that the world is convinced brings meaning to their life. But here are some things that Jesus does guarantee to us, and it is knowing the love of God. It is having the capacity to love other people 
through the strength that God gives you. It is knowing the peace of God. It is the ability to have peace that transcends our circumstances. When there seems to be no hope, we have a hope in Him. There is joy in this life that isn't dependent upon how well we're doing financially and how healthy we are and how problem-free our life might be. When I came to Christ at the age of 20 and a half, my life was empty and meaningless and void of any significance of any kind. In fact, when I was a senior in high school, what I uttered to myself over and over and over again was, there has to be more to life than what I know, but I don't know where to find it. Jesus offers meaning and purpose. He offers a hope and a confidence and the truth and the promise of God, apart from anything else that the world would bait us with. The world can't produce what Christ can give. The world can't provide for us what it is we ultimately need, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. For thousands of years, the Israelites, the Jewish nation, had been waiting for the long-awaited Messiah. But they were looking for a political deliverer. They were looking for a king who was going to relieve them from enemy oppression. They were looking for a man who was going to bring back the glory days of David. They didn't get what they were looking for when Jesus showed up because He wasn't coming to be those things. Jesus is asking this question, what is your motivation for following Me? What is your motivation for following Christ? Well, as we look at this encounter that Jesus had, At the presentation of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, and the two men who are now following him down the roadway, we see their answer. The disciples answer, and it's really not a very direct answer, in verse 38 and 39. And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And so they answered Jesus' question with this question, where are you staying? And it wasn't an attempt to redirect Jesus' penetrating question, but what they are really saying is what we are seeking really can't be resolved here on the roadway. Where are you staying? We would like to come and sit with you. We would like to be in your audience, if, it will, if you will, because you are a rabbi, and that is a, is a term of admiration, which often means master within the Jewish context. And so what it is they want is an extended period of time to sit and listen to this man that John the Baptist has declared to be the Lamb of God, And so this is what it is they are seeking. They want to know who He is. A casual conversation is not sufficient for what it is they sought after. By asking where He was staying, they are indicating a willingness to follow Him. It is almost an incidental separation from John the Baptist, who has long said He is the one who is to come, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of a sandal. He must increase and I must decrease. They are ready to follow Him to see who He is. And Jesus answers their question with this, come and see. Isn't that an encouraging response? 
As you seek to know who He is, Jesus invites us to come and find out for ourselves intimately, personally, relationally. Not boxed up in religion, not boxed up in man-made traditions, but come and see who He is. It's an invitation for them to come and to get to know Him. If we will come and spend time with Him, then we will get to know Him. We will deepen in our relationship with Him. And so this invitation to come and see is an invitation to salvation. It's also an invitation to discipleship. And it's an invitation to completely change the focus of your life. These men were fishers. That's what their life was built upon. I don't know how many generations of fishermen there were in these families, but this is who they were. This is their identity. And Jesus is, an ex- is extending an invitation for all of that to change by simply saying, come and see who I am. It is a call to have our eyes opened to the truth of Jesus, to the truth that is fulfilled in His life and in His words. It's a call to transformation through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, the disciples answered the call and they came to see where He was staying. And sure enough, as we know the stories, their lives were completely transformed. And this is the reality. If we will spend time with Him... Seeking to know Him, our lives will be transformed. And so it says, they stayed with Him that day, and it was about the tenth hour, which translates from Jewish time to be about 4 p.m. And so in Jewish time, any part of a day is considered a day, and because their day began at sunset, it's quite possible that not only did they stay with Him for the remainder of that day and into the evening, but they may have stayed with Him the entire next day, and it would have not been inconsistent with that to be considered a single day in the way the Jews would keep track of time. And so these men now have stayed with Him. They have spent time with Him. They have come to see who He really is. And now we see how they respond. Number three. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So the first thing that Andrew does when he is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah is he goes to get his brother Simon. Now, Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. And if we didn't qualify his name right here, we would probably have no idea who Andrew really is. Peter is well known, is he not? Peter is the brash, outspoken, impulsive one. And Andrew is the brother. And apart from this acknowledgement of who Andrew is, we may never have known who he was. He was just kind of there. He was a very inconspicuous follower of Christ. We know from the accounts that we read in the Gospels and in the book of Acts that James and Peter and John were the three primary disciples who followed Jesus. In fact, Andrew is only mentioned a few times in all of the New Testament, and it's almost always centered around his call to be a disciple. A couple of the other occasions where Andrew is named in John's Gospel is when they are ready to feed the 5,000 people and there's not enough food, and Andrew brings a little boy to Jesus who has the fish and the loaves. We also see in John chapter 12 that, John, that Andrew brings some Gentiles or some Greeks to Jesus 
And that's about all we know about the life of Andrew. There isn't any record of any sermons that he preached. There is no indication that he wrote anything. There's nothing in our Bible that would be identified as Andrew's. It's possible that there's some literature out there, perhaps in the Apocrypha, which is the non-canonized portion of Scripture that we don't accept as being authoritative and biblical. There may be some other documents floating out there that have been attributed to him, but we can't say for certain anything that Andrew has done. But his declaration is key, and the introduction to Simon Peter is also key, and Andrew very simply proclaims that we have found the Messiah. The Messiah means Christ to the Greek. To the Jew it means the Anointed One. It was a term that was used of the high priest, of the patriarchs, of the king, as we looked at in the Psalms, but also of the Expected One, the Anointed One, the Son of God. A very unique designation for the Messiah. Now, Andrew and John didn't fully understand what the Messiahship of Jesus actually meant. They would spend the next several years learning that, and it wasn't really until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts and following that they began to fully understand what the Messiahship of Christ actually meant. And that's the benefit of what we read read in the New Testament from the accounts attributed to both John and to Peter and others. So they would learn the full scope of Jesus' Messiahship through His earthly ministry and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so now we see this introduction to the next apostle, to the next disciple that is named, and that is Simon. This is the disciple prophesied. Verse 42b, Jesus looked at him, you are Simon the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And so Simon the son of John is the prophesied disciple known as Peter the Rock. Peter the Stone. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock or stone. And what Jesus says at this first encounter with Peter is you are not Simon, but you are instead the rock. Now that's not the modern day rock, the movie guy who used to play football who makes some of the corny and cheesiest movies I've ever seen advertised. It's not that rock. But Peter is to be the rock. He is the rock of the church. He is the rock of Christianity in terms of his role and his responsibility as a disciple, as an apostle. And that rock is built upon the chief cornerstone who is none other than Jesus himself. It took Peter a long time long time to become the rock, didn't it? Don't get discouraged. It's going to take you and I a long time to become a rock as well. It didn't just happen because Jesus declared it to be so. It happened as Peter gave his life to Christ and was continually transformed through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. But Peter tripped and failed over and over and over In his life, he is well known for a few ridiculous but well-intentioned actions and statements. For example, the transfiguration. When they saw the physical glory of God manifested in the body of Jesus, he said, hey, let's stay on this temple and let's camp out for a while and let's build some booths. Let's just hang out here. Well, that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. When Jesus was predicting His death and was marching 
on the way to Jerusalem. It was Peter who said, Lord, you cannot die. We cannot let this happen. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan, knowing that that was God's predetermined plan for him to go to the cross. When they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter's attempt to protect Jesus when he struck Malchus, a servant of the priest, and cut his ear off. He also professed that he would rather die with Jesus before he would let anything happen to him. And we all know that, Jesus, that Peter denied Jesus publicly three times as he stood outside and listened to the trials that Jesus underwent. And yet at their first meeting, Jesus looks at Simon and says, you will become the rock. You know, when we come to Christ, He sees us for who we are to become, not who we currently are. If we would, if we would keep that perspective in our own mind, I am not who I am today, I am who God has intended me to be, and that is a child of the Most High, continually being transformed to the image of Christ, I think we would get far less discouraged and far less down on ourselves and far less likely to stop when we see ourselves not being who God has called us to be. Well, throughout the Gospel accounts, Peter is called three different names. He is called Simon. He is called Simon Peter. And he is also called Peter. There is reference to Peter in a totally secular sense where he is called Simon. For example, there is Simon's mother-in-law who is in Mark chapter 1. There is one of the boats that Simon owned in Luke chapter 5. This is the secular Simon. There is Simon when he is acting unspiritual or not like his regenerated self. You could say he was called Simon when he was acting carnally. We see some examples of this. In Luke chapter 22, when Jesus was predicting Peter's betrayal, He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. In Mark chapter 14, He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? And then early in Peter's experience with Jesus in Luke chapter 5, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. There's a bit of exasperation in Simon's voice that we can't really hear. He's like, man, we've been doing this all night. We know what we're doing. There's just no fish out here. And Jesus is cast on the other side, and so they do. And here's the response from that in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So when you see the reference to Simon, it's either secular Simon as a fisherman, it's the unregenerate Simon who is not acting in accordance with who God has called him to be, or there is Simon Peter, quote, Peter, who is the rock, being shaped and chiseled by the very work of God. In the book of Acts, and in First and Second Peter, you see evidence of the rock, of the man who was transformed as he came and sat at Jesus' feet and allowed his life to be changed completely. At the end of Peter's life, he died a martyr's death. And out of loyalty to Christ... He refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and was instead 
crucified upside down because he found himself unworthy to die in the same physical posture as his Lord. That's a man who was transformed. That is a man who became a rock. Next we find Philip. Philip is the disciple sought. So in these first accounts, we see that Andrew and John have heard the Baptist's testimony about Jesus and they followed him. They've gone and they have gotten Simon Peter. Now, we see a little bit of a transition here that Jesus seeks out Philip. Verse 43 and 44, the next day, he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So Bethsaida is in the same area as the other fishermen were. They likely knew each other well and also fished together. But here we see that, that Philip is invited by Jesus to follow him, and he does. There's no elaboration. There's no explanation. There's nothing that accompanies this invitation to follow and Philip's willingness to do just that. Philip, like Andrew, is a seemingly inconsequential disciple as recorded in the Gospels. We see that Philip is likely the same Philip here who encounters the Ethiopian eunuch after the day of Pentecost and shares with him Christ fulfilled through the Old Testament passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in the book of Isaiah. But he is inconspicuous throughout the New Testament. So notice what Philip does here. Philip does, just like Andrew, he goes to find Nathanael. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Tucked in there very, very neatly is the phrase, we. Philip now identifies himself with Simon and Andrew and John as a follower of Christ. And so we have found the Messiah, the one of whom Moses has written. So the law in the prophets is a common New Testament designation for the entirety of the Old Testament. So what Philip is saying is that everything that we have read in the Old Testament, through the law, through the prophets, about the Messiah, we have found the guy. We found the Messiah. And there had to be been incredible excitement as Nathaniel hears this. Apparently, Nathaniel has was devoted to studying the Old Testament as Philip seems to appeal to his interest in it by quoting the fact that all that Moses has spoken, the law and in the prophets has been fulfilled and this man that we have found and now we are introduced into Nathaniel or into Bartholomew who is the skeptical disciple. Verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So there's a bit of pride in Nathaniel's life. Apparently Nazareth was a village that was a little beneath Nathaniel, kind of like being on the other side of the tracks. So there were within some Jewish groups a hierarchy that was cast depending upon what village you lived in, perhaps even what your vocation was. But in Nathaniel's expectation... There's not anything good that can come out of Nazareth. And you're telling me that this inconsequential town that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament, 
this one that I don't like, the one that I believe is to be beneath me and not just me, but everybody else that I know, how could anything good come out of a place so unholy and so insignificant as Nazareth? Look what Philip says here. He repeats exactly what Jesus says earlier in the account. In verse 46, come and see. He repeats it. Come and find out for yourself the value that we have found in this individual that we are convinced is the Messiah, the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets have spoken of. So as Nathaniel has spoken privately to Philip, how can any good thing come out of Nazareth? As he is approaching Jesus, we see Jesus' first encounter with Nathanael. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael was an honest and a genuine Israelite. There was not any sense of hypocriticalness in his life. He was a true Israelite, and that's what's indicated by that word Indeed, that word indeed literally means genuinely or truthfully. He wasn't an Israelite externally like the religious leaders were, the ones who played games, the ones who manipulated the circumstances for their own game. He was a truly devoted Israelite waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Verse 48, Nathaniel says to him, How do you know me? How do you know that I am indeed genuine, and how do you know that I am truly an Israelite? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So a couple of things here that aren't very obvious. First one is this, is the fig tree was a common place that Jewish people would go sit under to read the law, to meditate, and to study, and to pray. It was kind of like a place of solace. And so in Jesus' omniscience, his ability to see everything and to know everything, he knew exactly where Nathaniel was. He knew exactly what Nathaniel was doing. And it's very probable that Nathaniel was, in fact, under a fig tree reading the Old Testament, reading the law. And Jesus sees him there and identifies his omniscience confirming what he has heard from Philip, that we have found the Messiah, the one promised by Moses. Eventually, Nathaniel is convinced that Jesus is, in fact, who he has been portrayed to be. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So, again, Rabbi is that term of affection, that term of Submission unto your authority and to your teaching. He says, you are the Son of God. The Son of God is the common Old Testament phrase for the Messiah. It was spoken of David at his coronation, but also an allusion to the coming and the true Messiah who would eventually come. If you remember in our study in the Psalms, in Psalm 2 at David's coronation, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so this reference as the son of God not only harkens back to what was said at David's coronation, but because that coronation comment was also messianic, it is Nathaniel's identification that Jesus is 
the Son of God. Now what also isn't known but is probable is that as Jesus has seen Nathanael reading under the fig tree, he knows exactly what it was Nathanael was reading and he's going to use it now as a further evidence of who he really is. So there's this further proof that is promised by Jesus. Verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and ascending on the Son of Man. So this reference to the angels ascending and ascending is a reference back to Genesis 28, verse 12, when Jacob was in a trance or in a dream or was praying, and he saw the ladder where the angels were ascending and ascending out of heaven. This is called Jacob's ladder. Here's what it says in Genesis 28:12. He, Jacob, had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So this ladder in Jacob's dream represents access to God and the angels are the ones who are ascending and descending up and down, doing the work of God, having direct access from the earth to the heaven through this ladder. This is perhaps what Nathaniel is reading under the fig tree. Jacob was dreaming of a day when man would have this kind of direct access to God like the angels do. Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, Behold, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? Not on a ladder, but on the Son of God. Meaning that Jesus is the ladder in Jacob's dream. Jesus is the one who makes direct access possible from earth to God who is in heaven. Jesus is the ladder. I wonder what Nathaniel's response might have been had he in fact been meditating on Jacob's ladder and what that meant and to hear Jesus say with his own ears, I am that ladder on which the angels ascend and descend out of heaven. And by the way, Nathaniel, you are going to get to see that. Every Jew would have loved to be able to experience this kind of manifestation of the presence of God in the works and in the miracles that He performed. And here Jesus is telling Nathaniel, you are going to get to see that for yourself. Jesus is the link between heaven and earth. He is the revealer of heaven, heavenly truth to men. He is the mediator between God and man. And He is the mediator of a new and a better covenant between God and man, the covenant of His blood. That truth would become increasingly clear, not only to Nathaniel, but to all of the disciples as they observed Jesus' life, as they had observed His ministry and heard His teaching. So the two things that we can learn from this narrative account and the calling of the first disciples in the Gospel of John, the first one is this, when you meet Jesus, you will follow Him. Meeting Him isn't factual information. It isn't 
a cultural understanding or acknowledgement of who He is, but meeting Him means being saved by Him and having fellowship with Him. When you meet Jesus, you will follow Him. You know, there's far too many Christians today who say, yeah, I know the Lord, I've been saved, but I live my life kind of on my own terms, doing what I want, going where I want, thinking how I want. I define the terms of this relationship. I want to tell you, my friend, that is not meeting Him. That is not knowing Him. And that is certainly not following Him. To follow Jesus means that not only do we know Him personally and intimately, but we obey Him and we build our lives upon the truth of who He is, of what He has said, and what we know will please Him. When we meet Jesus, we will follow Him. Secondly, as a follower, we should bring others to Him. I think that we are guilty of living out our salvation in a vacuum that is just about me and just about the circle of people that I define That's the nature and the scope of my salvation. I don't think it's coincidental that we see in this account and in the other gospel accounts of the calling of the disciples and those whose lives were transformed by knowing Him is that they bring others to Him. We don't have to have the gift of evangelism to bring people to Christ. We can simply share with them our own personal testimonies, what Christ has done in my life. Here was my life before Christ. Here is my life now since I have come to know Him, the difference that He has made. What is your story of transformation? That's what people need to hear. You can share the truth of Scripture with people. You can correct the faulty truth that they are building their lives upon. You can bring people to church so they can hear the truth of His Word. They can hear the Gospel presented as He is declared for who He is. You can pray. You can share your faith with them, asking the question, do you know if you were to die today that you would stand before God and enter into heaven for all of eternity? I don't think I could say yes to that. Let me share with you how you can know. We just we live our lives in a Christian vacuum, not willing to bring others to Him. I think as we reflect on who Christ is and on what He has done for us, we will become more willing to bring others to Him. Even if it means we're scared to death to open our mouths. We can certainly do that by the lives that we live. But short of hearing the truth declared about Christ, it's short. We need to pray that God would convict us to live out our faith in such a way that others would see Him in us and hear about Him from us. Would you join me in prayer? Fathers, we look at this account of the calling of these disciples, and although it's not an exhaustive list, we know that there's something supernatural when Jesus calls us to salvation. There's something supernatural that takes place in our lives. Eternity past intersects our lives and your call to be your child, enabling us 
to one day be with you for all of eternity. Father, I believe that our salvation and our following you has become so cliche in our lives that we're not even concerned about the people around us. God, I pray that you would break through that selfishness and that unbiblical and sinful attitude and that you would reveal to us the opportunities that you give to us to share with others the truth of who you are and what you've done. Father, we also recognize that following you isn't just a call to salvation, it's a call to obedience. And Father, we acknowledge how often we fail you. We thank you that there's forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. We thank you that your grace and your mercy are are inexhaustible, but we pray, Father, that that would never be an excuse to just coast, to be content with where we are, but that we would be continually challenged in our time with you and as we observe the lives of others. Father, would you do in us the work that you've designed to do, and may you find in us a willing heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing, please?